Amen. Please be seated. It's good to see all of you here this day. It is a privilege for me to introduce our speaker to you, Dr. Sam Waldron. He is one of the pastors at the Reformed Baptist Church in Kentucky. He is also the president of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. And Sam has been a longtime friend of this congregation. Again, it's a joy to have him. And as most of you will know, throughout this day, he's teaching the doctrine of end times or eschatology. And for those of you who don't know, Sam's got several books on the end times. I would highly commend all of those books to you. And brother, without further delay, we ask that you come and bring God's word to us. So good to have you, Sam. What a blessing. I'm a little bit off kilter, aren't I? But your pastor said I had to do that. So what can I do but obey? Uh, so, uh, but apparently that microphone will pick me up better if I do that. Okay, so just adjust your view and you'll be all right. Okay. Well, I do want to say it's a privilege to be here. Uh, I remember with great fondness and thankfulness, Pastor Sherwood Becker of beloved memory, and the times he asked me to come to speak at the New England Family Conference, and those were blessed times indeed, and very thankful for his memory and for his kindness to me. But as Pastor Rob said, I am speaking today on the subject of the end times, And something that most Christians today think is a staple of the end times, especially if you're to judge from Christian bookstores and TV Bible teachers and the Left Behind movies and popular Christian writing, you would think that the secret rapture and the pre-tribulational coming of Christ, that is to say the idea that Christ is coming back before the future tribulation, you would think that those things were plainly taught and taught everywhere in the scriptures. Now, I hope I don't offend you. It's not my purpose to offend you when I say that here is the fact of the matter. There is no clear support for that doctrine in the Bible. And in fact, The most explicit and clear passage on the subject contradicts that doctrine. And I want to preach on that passage this morning. And, of course, I'm not the Lord of your conscience. You will have to judge if I am correct in what I've just said. So turn your Bibles to that passage. It is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I'll be reading verses 1 to 12. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come 
unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things, and you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawlessness, that lawless one, will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming, that is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false, in order that all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Now my goal this morning is simply to work through this passage by way of verse-by-verse exposition and exhibit its clear teaching on the subject of the tribulation and the second coming. It has three sections which we will look at in order. We'll look at the familiar subject, the threatening deception, and the apostolic teaching. First of all, the familiar subject. 2 Thessalonians 2.1 makes the subject which Paul wishes to address very clear. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Now it is crucially important that you understand that Paul takes up a subject here about which he had already written the Thessalonian church. And I refer, of course, to that well-known passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and following, where he taught about the coming of Christ and the rapture of the saints and uh, the resurrection of the dead saints. It's quite important to a right understanding of this passage that you understand that Paul is here addressing the very same subjects and events he has dealt with there. Let me mention several things that confirm what I just said, that he's talking about the very same subjects. First of all, Paul uses the same peculiar word for Christ's coming here in 2 Thessalonians 2.1 as he does in 1 Thessalonians 4.15. And that peculiar word is the word parousia. We use it in English theology, but it, it represents the Greek word parousia, which means arrival. It refers to Christ's coming as his arrival. And it's used in 1 Thessalonians 4.15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the arrival, the parousia of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And Paul uses that same word, parousia, again here in 2 Thessalonians 2.1. But here's something else that shows us the similar subjects of the two passages. Paul couples the same event with the parousia, here in 2 Thessalonians 2.1 that he couples with it in 1 Thessalonians 4. He speaks both here and there of the gathering of Christ's people to him at his parousia. The gathering and the coming are inseparably linked. 
The gathering take place, takes place at the coming. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, he's made this perfectly clear. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. So in 1 Thessalonians 4, there is the coming of Christ, the parousia, and the gathering of his people to him, both the living saints and the dead saints. And here you have this very same thing, the coming and gathering. That's what Paul's talking about, this very same event. But something else here that... uh, You're going to have to, some of you take my word for, but it's the truth. Paul identifies these two events closely together by the grammatical construction he uses in 2 Thessalonians 2.1. He speaks of the coming and gathering. He does not speak of the coming and the gathering. He speaks of the coming and gathering. You see, the point is he does not repeat the definite article Uh, when he talks about the gathering, because the two things are closely together, uh, identified in his mind. This close identification of the two things is natural, given what he's already said in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 and following. And as we move on to the passage, the fact that the coming and gathering are inseparably related will become very important to remember. And then something else happens that's just exactly the same here as it is in 1 Thessalonians 4. When Paul speaks of the day of the Lord, here in 2 Thessalonians 2.2, he is referring to the same subject he has just identified in verse 1. The day of the Lord is the day of the coming and gathering of his people to him. Paul makes this very same transition in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. There, Paul transitions from the coming and gathering to the day of the Lord in exactly the same way as he does here. Look at that passage with me. If you haven't turned back there already in your Bibles, look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 15. And I'm going to have to read all the way through 5, 2 for you to see the point. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, the parousia of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1. Now as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. May I remind you that the chapter divisions are not inspired? And this one's really not inspired. <clears throat> because when he says, now as to the times and the epics, he's clearly talking about the times and the epics of the coming of the Lord that he's just been talking about. It's clear. Article of previous reference for you Greek grammarians. And then he goes on to refer to this coming and gathering as what? The day of the Lord, which he says will come just like a thief in the night. The coming of the Lord, Matthew 24 and 25, comes as a thief in the night. The day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night because the day of the Lord is the coming of the Lord. Now, why do you say, that seems obvious to me, why are you emphasizing it? Because 
the prevailing dispensational eschatology of our day makes a big hairy distinction between the two things. That's why. But there's no distinction. Paul has five times talked about the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord uh, in verses 15 to 18. And so it's natural for when he comes to 1 Thessalonians 5 2 to call the coming of the Lord the day of the Lord. Uh, so I hope you see then that the day of the Lord is the day of the coming and gathering. But why does Paul now have to address what I've been saying is this very familiar subject. Paul, you already said all of this stuff already in 1 Thessalonians 4. Why do you have to say it again? Well, that brings us to verses 2 and 3. That you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you. We must begin by understanding that the faith of the church in Thessalonica was very immature. Now, in fact, Luke in the book of Acts only speaks of three Sabbath days that Paul was there. Now, it was likely when you piece some other things together that he was longer than he was longer there than just three weeks, but it wasn't much longer than that. So Paul's ministry there in Thessalonica was cut off long before he had laid the foundation he would normally like to lay for a local church. Acts 17.10 speaks of the hasty and secret departure which was forced upon him by the persecution of the Jews. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. And because of his forced and premature departure, Paul felt considerable anxiety for the church in Thessalonica. He tells us in 1 Thessalonians 3.1, Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And he sends Timothy to find out what's going on with that really immature and untaught church that he left behind in Thessalonica. Paul feels the necessity, then, in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, to give some very basic instruction to the church in Thessalonica so that they don't, this is his language, grieve as the rest who have no hope. Well, how could Christians grieve as the rest who have no hope? Christians that were very uninstructed. They were in danger of grieving like the rest who had no hope for their dead loved ones. This concern of the apostle also tells us how immature their understanding was of last things when Paul was forced out of Thessalonica. Now even though then he had written them with clear teaching in 1 Thessalonians, their immature condition was being undermined, and this is what forced Paul now to speak of these things again, was being undermined once more by false teaching, by a spirit he says, or a message, or a letter, as if from us. The term spirit probably refers to a supposed prophecy, the term message possibly refers to a rumored verbal instruction or preaching of the apostle, the term letter, it's the word epistle, contemplates the possibility of a forged letter. Now Paul doesn't know where the false teaching was coming from, but he does know it was coming, and 
he wanted them to know that it did not represent the views of the apostle, but you can understand why he would be so concerned. He hadn't been able to teach, teach these things clearly, and even though he'd said them in 1 Thessalonians, now this new letter as if from him, or this new prophecy as if from him, comes along, and, and oh, he's thinking to himself, those folks in Thessalonica could be really, really confused. And so he repeats what he said in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. But now we come to something that we're going to have to think very carefully about. What was the false teaching that threatened the infant church in Thessalonica? It was the report that the day of the Lord had come. But what could such a teaching have meant. Now, of course, we remember that the day of the Lord clearly refers here to the parousia and gathering of Christ's people to him at that event. Paul's emphasized this already. It's what the context demands us to understand when he talks about the day of the Lord. Paul says the day of the Lord, according to this false teaching, had set in. The verb used here means to be present or to be here. And Paul puts it in the perfect tense, which means that it came and it's now here. So the day of the Lord has become and is now present. The day of the Lord stands present. That's the false teaching. <laughs> but my question is, how in the world can anybody be bothered by something so obviously false as that? You see the difficulty. And actually there's more than one problem. The first problem is that Paul can scarcely mean to imply that the false teachers were saying that the second coming resurrection and rapture had already happened. No Christian could possibly believe that. That falsehood was too obvious to have any credibility. Paul must mean that the false teachers were saying that these things were immediately imminent or impending. But beyond that, there's another problem. The other problem is this. And this is what makes our, the interpretation of the present passage so ticklish. Paul himself at times, Paul himself, taught that the coming of the Lord was near. Dozens of times he said it in his letters. And in that sense, in teaching that the coming of the Lord was near, he said that it was imminent. And there is a sense in which Paul believed that the coming of the Lord was imminent or near. But here Paul is saying, apparently, when he contradicts the false teaching, that it's not imminent. So how do we put those two things together? Is it imminent or not, Paul? Is it near or not? Uh, now, here's what I think. Here's my solution. You can think about it. I think that Paul must mean to contradict the false teachers by saying that the day of the Lord was not imminent in such a way as to be in the immediate future. It was not imminent in such a way, let's put it this way, to warrant Christians giving up their day jobs. <laughs> Although, what Christian would have done that? Read the next chapter. 
They were doing it in Thessalonica. So that's the sense in which I think the false teaching was being received, that the day of the Lord was immediately imminent. Uh, it's going to be in the next few days, weeks, maybe a month. But it's all right, you can give up your day job, sponge off other Christians who aren't so enlightened as you, and preach the gospel and wait for Christ to come back. I think that's what was going on. They were waiting for the day of the Lord, which they thought could be any day now. Nothing intervened, and no prophesied event need occur first between the present day and the day of the Lord. Paul is now going to refute this false teaching by saying exactly the opposite. And that brings us to Roman numeral three, the apostolic teaching. The apostolic teaching regarding the Christ's coming and our gathering to him. Now Paul says three things, or talks about, yeah, three things here as he talks about the, his teaching. He's going to speak of what must happen first, what prevents this now, and what will happen then. You got it? What must happen first, what prevents this now, and what will happen then? What must happen first? Paul teaches explicitly that there are some things that must happen before Christ comes back. Now, I've just contradicted what some of you have been taught all your lives. Do you realize that? Well, I'll, I'll let you figure it out. <laughs> what must happen first? Paul teaches explicitly that there are some things that must happen before Christ comes back and we are gathered to him. He says that the day of the Lord, quote, will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? Paul here reminds the Thessalonians of something he had touched on even in his short ministry there. Notice verse 5 where he says he had taught them this. He had said that certain events were appointed and predicted to precede, to precede the day of the Lord. And there were two such events and they were closely related. The first was the apostasy. The apostasy. Wildly bad interpretations have been given of this word. But the word is apostasy. Here's how one Greek dictionary defines the word. As a condition resulting from changing loyalties, revolt, desertion. As a religious technical term, apostasy, rebellion, defection, abandonment. The word probably here refers to religious apostasy. I think some things in the rest of the passage suggest that. But can also connote rebellion against the true God. Though apostasy takes place all the time, this apostasy would be so widespread that it would be clearly seen as a significant event by genuine Christians. The second and closely related event was the revelation of the man of lawlessness. This is the person commonly known as the Antichrist, 
in popular prophecy. Yes, I think this language most naturally means that he is a future individual person and not some sort of movement or institution. The mystery of lawlessness, which Paul says already works, may be such a movement. But it produces at the end of time an individual who leads in the apostasy from God and the holy religion. He is apparently at the center of the great apostasy and leads it. Hendrickson is right when he says he is not an abstract power or a collective concept, but definitely an eschatological person. Paul also tells us that he claims for himself divine honors. He claims to be a god. Unless he calls men to worship him and forsake the true God. I think it's likely that the language of his taking his seed in the temple of God is not to be taken literally, nor does it refer to the church as others think. It just means that he claims the worship given to any God men worship in whatever temple they worship him. But now let me focus your attention on the important things that Paul assumes in these verses. Do you see the things he's assumed? I hope you do. He assumes that the apostasy and the revelation of the man of lawlessness are obvious events which all Christians will see. He assumes that. Because he assumes they haven't seen them, and that's why they shouldn't think the day of the Lord has come, but that they will see them, and then they can know that the day of the Lord has set in. Right? Right? He assumes that the Thessalonians know that these things have not happened yet. He assumes that they will know when they do happen. He tells them that until they do happen, until they do happen, they must not think that Christ's coming and our gathering to him are immediately imminent. And he directly implies that when they do happen, the coming of Christ let me say that again. He directly implies that when they do happen, the coming of Christ will be in the immediate future. Doesn't he imply that? I think he does. I think you can all see that. Well, that's the first thing. What must happen first? There must be, before the day of the Lord, the apostasy and the revelation of the man of lawlessness. What prevents this now? Verses 6 and 7 tell us. And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Now, <clears throat> this is an interesting thing. Paul says that the Thessalonians know knew what this restrainer was. <laughs> Nobody else has known since then. Well, at least uh, there's been uh, lots of different guesses and great controversy over what the restrainer and who the restrainer was. Uh, so most Christian commentators have been trying to figure out what the Thessalonians already knew ever since Paul wrote these words. <laughs> But there are many different views of this restrainer, and I'm not going to bother your heads with all the different ones. Uh, if you want to know about the other views, you can ask me. But my view, and I think it's the one that carries the most compelling evidence, 
is that the restraint is angelic power and the restrainer is a mighty angel. I think if you read Daniel 10 and Revelation 20 where angels restrain demonic power, this view is suggested because it makes sense that fallen angels like Satan and his minions would be restrained by unfallen angels. That makes sense to me anyway. But the important thing to realize is that there is a restrainer and a restraint upon the mystery of lawlessness throughout this age. This restraint lasts till the very end of the age. Then the Antichrist appears, then he's destroyed by Christ's second coming in short order. You should carefully note the three consecutive events that are put together in this passage. There is a time of restraining. There is, too, a removal of restraint and the coming of apostasy, man of lawlessness, time of delusion. And three, after a short time, the destruction of the Antichrist and his followers. Now, if you, if you read the Bible the way I do, that seems very, very similar to Revelation 20. You have the binding of Satan for a thousand years. You have the loosing of Satan for a short time. And then you have the destruction of Satan by fire coming down from heaven. Oh, interesting. The same sequence of events there in Revelation 20. Isn't that interesting? Maybe it's referring to the same thing. But that brings us to what will happen then. What will happen then? Verses 8 to 12 describe what will happen then. What happens at the end of the gospel age when the restrainer is removed? Then that lawlessness one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness. For those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. There is reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Some of you sitting out there should be terrified by that. You have not received the love of the truth. You sit here this morning for some reason. I'm glad you're here. But you have not received the love of the truth. You're sitting here out of tradition. You're sitting here because mom and dad made you come. You're sitting here for some other reason. But you have not received the love of the truth. And unless you do receive the love of the truth, this is what is in store for you. Serious, sad, tragic terrifying words. So during those terrible last days of this age, three things will happen. The lawless one will be revealed. And because you didn't see, receive the love of the truth, you'll go right in his heels. This is a reference to the personal antichrist or man of lawlessness mentioned in verse 3. The world, second thing, will be subjected to a tremendous deluding activity by Satan. False miracles and deceptive signs will be given to support the claims of the Antichrist. 
Satan, however, is the unwilling agent in God's hand to judge the world, which rejected the truth by causing them to believe a lie. This is, again, God's ironic judgment. You don't like the truth? You won't believe the truth? Okay, you're going to believe a lie. Appropriate, ironic judgment. Thus the world in delusion will follow the false god of the Antichrist to their destruction. This is the apostasy of which Paul spoke earlier, of course. And then, the Lord will return in glory. The word used is parousia, again, the very word used in verse 1. The very word used in verse 1 to speak of the coming and gathering is used of the coming to come when Jesus comes and destroys the Antichrist. That's significant. Apparently, the seeming triumph of the Antichrist will be only for a short time. Oh, Revelation 20 again. Then the supernatural judgment of the Lord will fall on him and the world following, and they will be totally destroyed. <clears throat> now, what do we learn practically from all of that? Well, let me suggest some things. The first thing, though, I must suggest to you is that we must distinguish a true and false doctrine of imminence according to this passage. Now, if you get up in our day and age in the Christian church and deny that the coming of Christ is imminent, you're liable to be branded as a heretic. Now, I'm not exactly doing that, but I don't believe the doctrine of imminence that's taught far and wide in the Christian church today, and that is that Christ could come back at any moment. Well, now, if our passage is true, that's not true, is it? Is it? If the, if the day of the Lord will not come until the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, I guess Christ is not coming back at any moment. Now, you say, you don't believe Christ's, Christ's coming is imminent? Well, that depends what you mean by imminent. Do you realize the term imminent is never used in the Bible of Christ's second coming? At least not in the New American Standard. It may be used in some rare other version. I don't know. But the fact of the matter is, the only time the New American Standard uses the term imminent in any form is to speak of how Peter, having grown old, knew that his, his going home, his exodus to heaven, was imminent. That's the only time the Bible uses the word. But now, you ask the question, well, don't you believe that Christ's coming is imminent? In the sense that it's near. But not in the sense that it could be at any moment. How can I say that in light of this passage? And in fact, the entire New Testament, or most of it, was written before the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus prophesied explicitly that the destruction of Jerusalem would take place before his second coming. And so how can any place in the New Testament say that the coming of Christ could be at any moment when the destruction of Jerusalem, everybody knew, hadn't taken place yet? Well, I'm getting excited. But, I mean, <clears throat> you know, you get excited when you feel like people might be out there thinking you're a heretic because of what you just said. So, pardon my excitement. Uh, <clears throat> you say, well, doesn't the Bible say that we've got to be watchful and alert for Christ's second coming? It certainly does, and you should be. Well, if it's not at any moment, how can that be? Well, let me tell you. I had a friend once, uh, and, well, it was George McDermott, Pastor Rob. 
Now, he didn't go to foreign countries to speak a lot, but he was in a foreign country. He told me this story. <laughs> he was in this former foreign country, and the last night there, he didn't sleep, sleep a wink. He stayed awake the whole night. Poor man. Why? Was it because his plane might leave at any moment? No. The plane was scheduled to leave at a specific time the next day. Why did he stay awake the whole night? Because he was afraid he might fall asleep and miss it. That's why. And that's why the Bible teaches that we must be watchful and alert. Because if we don't, if we aren't watchful and alert, we might fall asleep spiritually and not be ready. Well, <clears throat> the delicate thing about this is, as I've been saying, that there is a biblical doctrine of the imminence of Christ's coming. It is near. It is drawn near. It is coming nearer. But the term near is a different kind of in imminence than any moment imminence. It is a different kind. The feast of the Jews, we're told in the Gospels, we're near. That didn't mean that could happen at any time. They fell on certain specific dates. <laughs> so the point is this. There is a true doctrine of the imminence of Christ's coming. It's the imminence of nearness. But there is a false doctrine of Christ's second coming, and that's the imminence of any moment-ness. Well, <clears throat> I've hammered that enough. Let's go on. We must reject, then, if this passage is true, the unbiblical doctrine of pre-tribulationism. I don't hate pre-tribulationists. I was raised in, by pre-tribulationists. I was saved under pre-tribulationists. But that doesn't mean that they were right about this. In this passage, it's clear that there are things that must happen before Christ comes back that all, every Christian in the world will see, the apostasy and the revelation of the man of lawlessness. And this passage, though it's the clearest one, is confirmed and seconded by many other things in the Bible. Sometimes it's getting to be, well, maybe I have a little time to say this. In Matthew 24, Christ's coming comes after whatever that tribulation is there. We don't have to decide that at the moment. The book of Revelation has no coming of Christ until Revelation 19, after what dispensationalists tell us is the tribulation. In 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, the second coming of Christ, and this is true also of 2 Thessalonians 1, the second coming of Christ brings relief for the saints and the immediate destruction of the wicked. It doesn't bring a seven-year tribulation in which a lot of people still get saved. It brings immediate destruction, sudden destruction, Paul calls it in 1 Thessalonians 5. Don't you think you can wait for the tribulation and decide to be saved then and just get killed by the Antichrist. No, don't you think that? There is no salvation after Jesus comes back. There is no chance to be saved after you die. There is no chance to be saved after Jesus returns. That's it. That's the end. Repent now or repent never. Well, <clears throat> Another thing that this teaches us 
is that we must refuse the hope, the false hope, that the church will not go through the tribulation. Oh, isn't it wonderful? The church isn't going to go through the tribulation. How many times did I hear that growing up? Lots of times from Bible believers. But I have to say, it's just a little ridiculous. Doesn't the Bible say, in the world you have tribulation? But take courage, I have overcome the world. Doesn't the Bible say, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God? Doesn't the Bible say that the early believers received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit? Didn't John say that he was their partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus? Aren't those the way the Bible talks about this? Where in the world did you ever get the idea that you can get out of tribulation as a Christian? Where did that idea come from? How could it appeal to anybody that knows what the scripture teaches about the fact that we must suffer if we're going to reign with him? How could that be? Where is that coming from? I'll tell you where I think it's coming from. It's coming from a whole false doctrine of easy Christianity in our day. It's coming from the idea that faith for a moment gives you life for eternity. It's coming from the idea of eternal security, where you can make your decision for Christ and never be lost no matter how you live. I believe in the perseverance of the saints, but I don't believe in that. It's coming from the idea of carnal Christians. It's coming from all sorts of places, and together uh, you add it up and you get easy Christianity. And, and so it makes perfect sense then that, uh, that in the midst of easy Christianity, the idea that Christians won't go through the tribulation would be part of that whole mess, right? And I've mentioned it, and uh, I'm not going to be teaching on Revelation, this week, Revelation 20 this weekend, but you, you did see the parallel between 2 Thessalonians 2 and Revelation 20, right? Uh, <clears throat> that the same sequence of events occurs in 2 Thessalonians 2 as it does in Revelation 20. There's the restraint of the mystery of iniquity. There's the removal of the restraint. There's the destruction of, the, uh, of, of, of Satan and his minions at the end of time. Same sequence of events in both Revelation 20 and 2 Thessalonians 2. And that's one big pointer that they're talking about the same period of time. Revelation 20 isn't talking about a future millennium. It's talking about the gospel age. But I don't have time to prove that to you. But here's a... Here's something else, and it's uh, well, it's it, it's something that's kind of dawned on me gradually over the last few years. We must accept the truth of a short time of global tribulation for the church, and of a personal antichrist emerging at the end of the gospel age. Um. When we compare 2 Thessalonians 2 and Revelation 20, it becomes clear that there's a short period of specific, concentrated, terrible tribulation for the church at the end of the gospel age. 
I think there are other passages that teach this truth as well, but these are two clear examples, and they make the matter clear enough. Revelation 23 speaks of a short time of Satan's loosing following the thousand years in which Satan was bound. Second Thessalonians speaks of a period of apostasy and delusion following the time of the restraint of the mystery of lawlessness, and that this is brought to end by the parousia of Christ. Now, when I talk about a future Antichrist and tribulation, I am not committing us, or me, to all the mythical ideas associated with the so-called Great Tribulation by dispensationalism. I am not saying it's a seven-year period of time. I am not saying that it's a time of widespread war and natural disaster. I am only saying that it's a time of terrible spiritual delusion for the world and of global destruction for the church, or persecution for the church. Well, a lot more could be said there. But there's this, too. We must see the implication of this passage in a more positive way. It sounds really negative that the age is going to end in a time of tribulation and the appearance of the Antichrist and isn't that terrible and everything's getting darker and darker and it's all gloomy, black, and terrible. Let's go hide in our caves and, and not come out. That's not what I'm saying. That's not the way you should react. Because there's something else implied by this passage, and it's something that's rather hopeful, in fact. We'll look at it more this evening. There is in this passage the implication of the worldwide spread of the gospel and the worldwide building of the Church of Christ. Do you see that? How could there be global apostasy if there wasn't global Christianity? Right? I can't get out of that implication. If there's global apostasy, there must have been global Christianity. And there will be a remnant according to the election of grace even during that terrible time. If there is an apostasy after a lengthy period of restraint, and if there's a thousand years to which Satan is bound, the necessary implication is that the gospel does spread successfully throughout the world. That's the implication. How could there be worldwide apostasy if the truth was not first accepted worldwide? How could there be a rebellion if the rule of Christ was not first accepted globally in some sense? Often when the end times are taught today, a terrible pessimism about the church is encouraged. If the age will end with the tribulation and the man of sin, then the conclusion seems to be that things will only get worse and worse until the end. Evil men will go worse and worse, period. But brothers and sisters, it's not period. It's not a period. Yes, evil men will go worse and worse, but the Bible says that good will grow. The gospel will be preached. The church will be built across the world. And this evening... This sounds like an advertisement to come back. Well, it's not really, but I wish it would. The parable of the wheat and weeds contains the true statement of what actually happens in this age. And it's not just that evil gets worse and worse. Oh, give up. No. The parable of the wheat and weeds tells us 
what the words of the Lord of the harvest are, allow both good and evil to grow together until the harvest. Oh, if the evil grows, it's going to destroy the good. No. Oh, if the good grows, it'll destroy the evil. No. Let both grow together until the harvest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this mercy of hearing your word. We thank you that we don't wander in a trackless ocean of time with no idea what's going on in the world like so many of our fellow citizens of the United States of America do, vulnerable to every deception, vulnerable to every false teaching, vulnerable to terrible despair and hopelessness. We ask that you would be pleased to deliver our countrymen from this hopeless despair of not knowing what's going on in this world. But Lord, we thank you that you have shown us and help us to walk worthy of the gospel with which we've been called. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.